Well, as we continue our worship today through the preaching of God's Word, I would ask you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege together, and we come this morning uh, to be humbled by your worth, by your majesty, uh, to be humbled by our frailty and our great need for um, your sovereign work in our lives, for the Son's sovereign work in our lives as prophet, priest, and king in the fullest sense. We are frail, we are weak, we are prone to wander, and we come to confess that. We come to have our pride that so easily rises up within us to be brought low before the glory of your uh, majesty, the splendor of your worth. And we ask that you would cleanse us and that you would change us and that you would give us more and more uh, of the indwelling spirit guiding and strengthening and directing us where uh, the flesh is being put away and our lives are being hidden and the power of the Spirit of God that dwells within us, Christ within us, the hope of glory. This is our great need and this is our confession uh, that we without you can do nothing. And we ask that our lives would be full in the richest sense of your glory and your majesty and your wonder and it would overflow uh, into this lost world, that you might be a re- that we might be a reflection of your glory, and that our lives might be used up in the full of sen- fullest sense that we would have fruit that remains eternally to your glory. This is our confession. This is our hope. This is our great desire. Hear our hearts this morning, Lord. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning I, I invite you to join me back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter eight. And we'll be looking at verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And the title of the sermon, uh, excuse me, the title of this morning's sermon is Conversion of the Ethiopian Eunuch. So look with me there, beginning in verse 26. And let's read through uh, this section prior, and then we'll delve into it a bit. Uh, Actually, let me back up to verse 25 to kind of get a running start at the context here. So, if you recall, um, Simon was a little issue there in uh, in Samaria, but there was a great revival beyond that, a great revival breaking out, and um, Philip was at the centerpiece, kind of the center uh, evangelist there in that revival. So, the um, the apostles... uh, uh, came in, stepped in there, Simon was addressed, the issue of Simon was addressed. But then, in verse 25, it says, So they, so, uh, they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, and they started back to Jerusalem, and here we are, were preaching the gospel in many villages um, of, the, of the Samaritans. In verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a, a, a court officer, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears was silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Generation. For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch, was no, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he passed through, and he kept preaching the gospel in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, we see here in context that a revival has broken out in Jerusalem. And we know that uh, Stephen's martyrdom there sort of sparked a greater re- uh, uh, um, persecution of the church that began to spread throughout all of Jerusalem, a more severe persecution. Some of the uh, Christians there now are fleeing, and we see many of them fleeing into Samaria. Now, as they're fleeing, what they do is just carry the gospel on with them. And now, gospel uh, the gospel message is being brought into the, these, these half-breed uh, hated Samaritans where uh, um, the, the, the tension, the, the vitriol has been so severe between Hebrews there in Jerusalem and these half-breed Samaritans uh, uh, there now in Samaria. But the gospel comes. These Christians come and they come bearing the gospel. And now in Samaria, revival breaks out among these half-breeds uh, 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 that have now married into these pagans brought in by the Assyrians years and years ago. Such tension, such hatred has now pushed away. These barriers are broken down and the gospel begins to spread like wildfire all throughout Samaria. And point man in this revival is Philip. Yes, Deacon Philip, but now we see also Evangelist Philip. And so... The gospel is sweeping. And right as we see the gospel sweeping through Samaria, God calls Philip to a divine encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch on a desert road. And what we see pictured here in verses 26 through 40 in Acts chapter 8 is a clear picture of salvation and the fulfillment of prophecy. That prophecy specifically being the prophecy we find in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where the gospel will go and it will ripple out from Jerusalem into outer parts of Judea into Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So I'm going to tell you up front what you're getting a glimpse of here is the gospel moving in prophetic form to the ends of the earth. And we see the Ethiopian eunuch, and we'll have to do a little history lesson here, so just hang on with me for that part. But that lays the historical groundwork for us to understand this theologically as now point man, Philip, being that vessel to carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we see that. It's ongoing now. The gospel spreads to all nations until Christ's return. But in Scripture, space and time right here in this context, you see here in, this, in these passages, gospel going to the end of the earth. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So that's what we're going to pick up on here. And first I want you to see the initiative in verses 26 through 29. The initiative. Look there with me. It says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So what did Philip do? Well, he obeyed. He got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch there. He was a court official of Candace, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And he was in charge of the treasury. Or he was the treasury. He was in charge of the money. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And now he was returning and he was sitting in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So what I want you to to take up front here and hold when we think about the initiative is this reality that God is the initiator. And we receive His guidance one step at a time. He does not show us the whole picture all at once. Now, when we think about our role as carrying the gospel, when we think about Philip in this context as he's carrying the gospel, 
God is the initiator here. God initiates the spread of the gospel. Is Philip going to be a means through which God uses? Well, yes, of course. But God is the initiator. And the same is true with us. And so when God is the initiator in our lives, as we go forth and carry the gospel, hold this thought with you. God initiates and He does it step by step. He's not going to give you the whole picture all at once. Okay? That's important for us because what do we think we want? And all our frailty and all our ignorance, brother, what do we think we want from God as the initiator in our role as, as, as His people carrying forth the gospel? What do we think we want? We think we want the whole picture up front, don't we? But that's not what's best for us. God knows what's best and He gives it to us one step at a time. So here Philip was, uh, Philip was led by a special revelation. And what has happened to him is what we see happened to those prophets of the Old Testament. So in a sense here, you're looking at Philip serving as a New Testament prophet. That is to say, God speaks to him in special revelation here. He speaks through divine revelation. He speaks directly to uh, Philip's spirit directly. Okay, that's what's happening. That's what happened to the Old Testament prophets. So Philip here is a New Testament prophet in this, in this regard. That's how God's operating with him here. He's giving him divine revelation. Get up and go. So we see him here as prophet, evangelist, and he's also the deacon. Right? Regular old deacon. But now he's serving as an evangelist like we're all called to do. Yet, there is this unique situation here where he is uh, receiving divine revelation. Now, we know that is true, but here's what I want to say to you. That is true for Philip in this context, but that is not true for us. Amen? We do not receive special revelation. That's not how God works with the New Testament church. Now, post-apostolic era. The, the, the apostles of Christ have passed away, and now Christ deals with us and speaks with us. Same God, same, same God's leading us, as we see here, leading Philip, but here's how God leads us now, okay? So hold on to this. He leads us through His Word, through Scripture, through the indwelling Spirit, and through providence. It's the three ways that God works in our lives now. Alright? So, let, let me hang, hold it here just for a moment because it's important in our context. How many folks do we know, do you know, Christian brothers and sisters, that will tell you now that God told them direct revelation to do this or that? Uh, something has happened in their life and they were doing something and they spoke to God and God told them through special revelation, spoke to them directly what to do. So we hear that all the time. Well, and people maybe with every good intention will say, well, you know, the Lord told me to do this or that. Now, if we inquire, it's usually, they don't mean that they were, uh, like James 1 tells us, they were praying and seeking wisdom and they were fervently studying God's Word and they were listening to the indwelling Spirit's direction of their lives and they were assessing the, uh, God's providence over their situation and they were praying, and then they made a decision as best they could, wanting to honor God with all their heart, and followed through with it as faithfully and humbly as they could. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, what I hear in my head is a voice from God, and I act on it emotionally. That's not what's true of us. Three ways, okay? The Scripture, the indwelling Spirit, and God's providence of our lives. We pray, we ask for God's wisdom, we look at the situation, and we make our best decisions of what we think will bring God most glory, and we go forward in humility and tenderness and willingness to be directed and corrected and hearing voices from other brothers and sisters and seeking wisdom, okay? That's how we go. So that we just tidy that one up up front, all right? But what does he do here? He's, he's definitely uh, he's under divine inspiration here. A direct, uh, a direct inspiration. But what does he do? Note that he obeys. He left Samaria and he goes to this Gaza road, this, this desert road that's leading south. So he obeys. He does what uh, God is, has required of him. And then he was told to go up and join this carriage. And what does he do? He obeys. Now let's look at verse 27. I want you to bring you to the 
historical context, as that's going to help us a little bit this morning. So verse 27. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court uh, official of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he was coming from, he, was, he had been, to, wor- he had been to, to worship, and now he's returning, going back. Okay? So, he's an Ethiopian eunuch. But when we hear this in context here, in the first century, we're not thinking of Ethiopia being located where we believe Ethiopia to be today. That's not the same location. Ethiopia today is located directly east of Egypt, right along the Horn of Africa, right? This Ethiopia, that's referred to here in context, is an area directly south of Egypt. In ancient times, the area east of Egypt, that is now, currently modern-day Ethiopia, was called Abyssinia in that time. That's not the area we're talking about. We're talking about a region south of, of Egypt that was called Nubia. So this eunuch is a court official from Nubia. And the reason it's called Ethiopia in the first century is that that's a Greek term. And it's a Greek term that refers to a person that has black skin. So remember, we're looking at a Greek world here. There was that guy, Alexander the Great, right? And this area here is the outer regions of the, Greek, uh, of the Greek-speaking world, of that Greek empire that was brought about by Alexander the Great. And so now you're looking at the outer regions of that empire. And so this was a Greek term used for that area that referred to uh, people with black skin. That's why they're referred to as Ethiopians uh, in that time. So, what we're seeing here is a black man from the southern region of Africa. That is below um, uh, Egypt there. And he's a high-ranking official. He's a treasurer. He's the man that deals with the money of the queen, Candace. Now, Candace is not the given name for the queen of Nubia. That's just a title. Same as, as we might think of Caesar. as a title for the emperor of Rome. Or Pharaoh is a title for the king of Egypt. Same sense. So Candace is a title. And Candace is the queen mother and she rules the country. Now, they're actually the queen mother, Candace, um, runs the affairs of the country. But the, the son of the queen mother is actually the ruler of Nubia. So they had a unique system in the sense that they viewed the son of the queen mother as uh, somewhat of a godlike figure. And he was, uh, being a godlike figure, was far above the everyday rulings of the empire. So that work was left to the queen mother, while the son, who was a son of the sun, a son kind of demigod of the sun god, S-U-N, just kind of hangs out in the palace and relaxes and maybe eats a lot of fruit. So that's his job. He's sort of godlike. But the queen has the responsibility of running the country. And this eunuch is her treasurer. Now, he is a eunuch, and that means he has, he has been um, surgically altered. So he's not a eunuch in a uh, metaphorical sense. It's a literal sense. So he's not, and that was a practice not common at all in Israel, but common in the pagan world at this time. So he has uh, been surgically altered, and he's serving. Um, he cannot have children. He's serving but in this very uh, important role, and he's a man of wealth and a man of influence. And somewhere along the way, the God of Israel has found way to this man way down here in this outer realm of the earth. And in, in, in terms of Old Testament, first, or excuse me, in terms of first century Palestine, uh, 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 Jerusalem would understand this as the very edge of the earth. And so down here in the very edge of the earth, this guy has heard about the one true God. Now, there was that great library in Alexandria. 
there in Egypt, not too far away. Who knows how he heard about the one true God. But what we need to understand here is despite all the failings of Old Testament Israel, and then he spoke about a, a few of those today in our morning study, despite all the failings, all the lack of our capacity to keep covenant as sinners, the, the, despite the fact of their lack of capacity to keep covenant with God as sinners, the reality of the one true God still got down to this guy. And he went. Now, this is hundreds and hundreds of miles. He has traveled up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, again, he's traveling in a traveling carriage. This is not like, you know, uh, a, a battle carriage. This is kind of a luxurious ride back in the day. And he probably has servants with him. But nonetheless, it's an arduous journey. This is a difficult desert road. And so he's traveled to, Jer- to Jerusalem to worship. I wonder, I wonder what he found there. Because you know the context. We've been looking at this. We've been looking at the New Testament church rising up there, right? I mean, they're rising up in the height of Pharisaicalism, right? Is that a word? Did I just make that up? They're rising up in the height of this time where there is hypocrisy up to the eyebrows. I wonder what he found in regards to the religious leaders. I can't say. I, in my mind, my intuition says he was horribly disappointed. But you know what he got his hands on? Scripture. Probably the Septuagint, the Old Testament here, you know, with the New Testament still, that's, that's, that's in flux, that's, gonna, that's coming. Um, so he has the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's probably a Greek reader. That's what we're looking at, most likely here. So he gets his hands on Scripture. And he's traveling back. He's traveling back home. And that's where we pick him up here. This high-ranking official. And look there. It says, then Philip, in verse 29, goes up and he joins the chariot. Now, that brings me right to Isaiah chapter 56, and we're going to see some prophecy here. Listen to the language. Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls, a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. You're fixing to look at that in space and time right here. That's what's about to happen. Is that not good? Is that not a good and glorious God? This man is a high-ranking official. And by the way, the kingdom, we get um, now, we kind of have to look at Nubia or what's here in, uh, because of you know, the great spread of, of Alexander the Great's empire, what, what's now called Ethiopia. It's, it's, it's modern-day Sudan. That kind of gives you, it's, it was bigger than that, but it encompasses that lower part there below Egypt still right along the Nile. So the Sudan would give you a kind of pinpoint on the map to get, kind of clue you into the region. But they were rival powers. They were rival powers with Egypt back in the day. Now, long term, we get our history about them through Egypt. So it's probably a little, you know, a little prejudiced, a little biased. Uh, so we don't get a whole lot about them, but they were rival uh, power, kingdom powers there between Egypt and Nubia. This guy is a... a, a He's somebody in this kingdom. But yet he's been mutilated. And by the way, that typology, the picture of Old Testament Israel, that, that points to the fulfillment of sinful man being made right before a holy God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. All the typology that points to that, that cannot make Man right with God, sinful man right with holy God, but points to the one who will. Found within that is a huge barrier for this guy. Beyond the barrier of him being a Gentile. Somebody out on the outer edges. He's a eunuch. And Deuteronomy tells us he's out. He doesn't even get to come into the proselyte court. He doesn't even get to... You know, Danny was talking about that wall... There in Ephesians has been broken down. The outer wall dividing the Gentiles, the God-fearers. He might get to come in to some lower level status as a God-fearer. 
But he doesn't even get to come in to that court. I mean, he's out way back in the sticks somewhere. Eunuchs don't come in. This guy has multiple barriers. But here he is. Here he is. Now, he may have become, again, a proselyte of a lower level, sort of a lower level God-fearer, but he's out. Now, typology in that context and literal Old Testament Israel and the courts, you don't even see him. Can't come close. Okay? That's where we're looking. Can't come close. But there's something very important here. He's, he's far back, but he has something in his possession. He has the Scripture. And that's where Philip meets him. Again, Philip leading the prompting of the Spirit here races up to the chariot there in verse 30. And prepared here for that encounter is this Ethiopian unit because he has the Scripture in hand. Now he's reading out of the book of Isaiah. And so right here, he's being providentially prepared. He's kind of being, the pump is being primed here for this encounter. That is God's initiative. God is bringing about this encounter. So he's working on both ends. Amen, somebody. You, you, you've been there, you understand how that works. Yes, he's working with you. And yes, it's step by step. No, you don't get the full picture, but he's doing it. And he's doing it on the other end. The next step he's going to bring you along to, he's been there. He's working both ways here. So this is providential preparation here for this guy. For what? For the conversation with Philip because he's coming. And don't lose track of the fact that he did obey God. Now this is, again, it's a unique uh, uh, reality here of, of the divine uh, revelation that comes direct to him. But he's obeying. So he joins up with the carriage here. Now we too are led by God, just not by direct Revelation. God leads us step by step, just like what, just what you see here in this initiative. God leads us step by step, just not by direct revelation. So we don't get the whole picture at once. We receive divine guidance when we need it. Right? So what do we get here? What do we get here with Philip on his end? Go south to the desert road. Okay, Lord. Go up and join this chariot that you see uh, traveling uh, along this desert road. Okay, Lord. We get it, what we need, when we need it. We receive divine guidance as we need. We're on a need-to-know basis. So when I look about how God still works with us, the same is true. Same God, same revelation, same God working us, works differently, but the same is true for us in this regard. We get it step by step, just like Philip did, just like all other believers have all throughout uh, the, the history of Christianity until Christ returns for us. And we get it right when we need it. So it's, it's like I tell my boys, you're on a need-to-know basis, boys. And usually that's followed in most situations by, and right now, you don't need to know. When you need to know, I'll let you know. You're on a need-to-know basis. We're on a need-to-know basis. That's how our relationship works with God. And here's what's so good about that. It builds our faith. It builds our dependence upon the Lord. If He gave us the whole picture, wouldn't you be doing just like I would be doing? Oh, I'm going to plan that out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'll take care of this in this way. We'll be planning it out. No, it's step by step. Then we're dependent upon God. Then that builds our trust. And that builds up our hope. That builds up our joy. That builds up our anticipation, our eagerness. That makes us better worshipers. And my goodness, you don't want the whole picture. Would you ever thought about, maybe I'm a little morbid, would you ever thought about if God just revealed to you how you, your death, when you would die, and how you would die? Now, it is a great comfort that God has our days appointed that He knows the time of our death, and nothing is going to stop us as His people until it's His determined time for us to die. We're going to accomplish everything He intends for us to accomplish uh, according to His power working within us and our obeying His dire- direction in our lives until He's done with us. He knows exactly when, we're going, when He's going to be done with us. He knows when we're going to die. And nothing's going to stop us until that point. Now that is a 
great, joyous comfort. But if I knew exactly when I was going to die, and more particularly how I was going to die, I'd be living in dread. I would dread that day. Now I just live in joyful anticipation. I don't know when or how, but I know it's not going to happen until God's finished with me. It's exactly how it works for us, and God knows best. If we had the whole picture, man, we'd be planning it out. We'd be messing it up. God knows best. So I I spend time here just to say, trust Him. Rejoice in this reality. It's on a need-to-know basis. Seek wisdom and seek to obey God. Seek to make decisions that bring Him most glory and uh, humbly move forward in your faith. That's what's going on here. And so that brings me to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And it's a beautiful passage that we all know so well, maybe we don't ponder it enough. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Hold to that. Don't lean on your own understanding. He helps us not do that by leading us step by step, moment by moment. Here's how we might pray. We might pray a a multiplicity of ways according to Scripture. But here's a beautiful little concept in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 25, verses 4 and 5 says this, Make me know your ways. Now there's a good prayer. There's a good start. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I will wait all the day. Now approach God that way and trust Him to lead you step by step. And He knows best. So He leads us also step by step, but in very unpredictable ways, right? So be ready for that. Again, that's why He doesn't give us the whole big picture. Because sometimes there's uh, there's some trials that we might have to go through as believers, right? And we don't necessarily like the thought of the trials, although the the spiritual benefit of the trials is tremendous. But the thought of the trials, not so much. But when we understand this, and we take into consideration that sometimes it's unpredictable, don't let that discourage you. Look where Philip was. Where was he? Where did we find him? Samaria, right? What was going on? Revival! You like being in the midst of a revival? We don't have to say it out loud, but you might even want to say, I like being the point man. Now, there might be some problems with that, but we might say it. And it's still revival. Here he was, point man, in a wonderful, glorious time of revival. Yes, there was Simon. That was an issue. But beyond that, there was a glorious revival in Samaria. And what does God do? He takes the point man... Right out of the revival, right while it's still going on. And takes them where? Well, to the next great revival, right? No, to the middle of nowhere. Down a desert road. Sometimes it's unpredictable. And if that wasn't enough, now you're down, you're down a desert road, and here's this kind of grandiose uh, carriage just moving along, and go up and join yourself to the carriage. Sometimes it's unpredictable. But God knows best. And that brings us to the explanation here. Let's look at verses 30 through 35, the explanation. We see that God is the initiator. We see uh, the initiator. We see that uh, our role is to obey and trust Him. And know that we're on a need to know basis. And sometimes it might be a little different than uh, we had it planned out. But God knows best. Verse 30 there. So Philip runs up and he hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says to him, you ask him a question, a very excellent question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the unit says back in verse 31, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And the, and the term translated that we have translated guides there is a term that speaks to uh, someone who guides the blind, a blind guide. How, how could I understand? I need, I need someone to guide me along in this. I'm, I'm like a blind man blundering through this. I don't really understand what I'm reading. So he invites Philip to come up and sit in with him. Okay? And here, simple truth I want you to hold to up front. Always be ready to give a defense of the faith. 1 Peter 3.15 Be ready. Just be ready. 
We're not going to do it in our own strength. Don't put the pressure on yourself, but be ready. Be before God. Be uh, 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 in prayer before God. And, and have your hearts that are set on being ready for God to equip you for readiness. But your role as a son or daughter of God is to cultivate that. Strive for that. Pray. Be ready to give a defense of your faith. And so we ask you a simple question. Do you know what you're, talk, or what you're reading here? Do you, know what you, do you understand what you're reading? And then uh, he was reading aloud, so he heard him reading. Now that, wasn't, that might be weird in our culture, but that wasn't an uncommon practice in their day. Actually, it was probably something that we should, might take back up. I think you can comprehend much better if you read to yourself out loud. Um, that's just my opinion. But that was, nonetheless, that was the case. And that was a very common practice in the ancient world. So he hears him reading out loud. He says, no, you know, I don't understand it. Now, the Bible is clear. The Bible is authoritative in our lives. It is clear. It's understandable. The message of salvation is a clear message. It's not, uh, uh, we don't have to um, think that it's cryptic. It's straightforward. We read it in its historical, grammatical uh, um, context. We read the syntax in terms of, we, we read it in its genre. And we read it understanding, uh, seeking to understand what the original authors were communicating to the original audience and know that it is applicable to our lives. In the lives of all people throughout the world and every generation, it's supernaturally applicable. It's clear. But there are times that we need a spiritual guide. Now, that's most straightforwardly made clear to us in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 talks just about that very thing that pastors and teachers are gifts to the church. And part of their role is to help guide folks along in understanding the Scripture. But there's a balance here. We are to take up the Scripture and know that the, that the Spirit of God that indwells every believer will help us to understand Scripture and apply it to our lives in a way that we can worship God and honor Him with every aspect of our lives in a holistic way. But rolled into that is this gift of the church that uh, is, is a concept of, there's uh, the concept of having guides, people that come alongside one another as equals, brothers and sisters, maybe with unique roles, but nonetheless equal but yet helping one another. Kind of the concept of iron sharpening iron. So that's an element that's true. They're both true. They're both wins for the Christian church. We are to individually take up God's Word knowing that it's clear and we can understand it. And the Spirit of God that indwells us will enable us to understand it rightly. But we don't do that in a void, in a bubble. So it's not solo. Scriptura, which is me by myself in the Scripture under the tree. And I will never have any interest in a guide or any brother or sister coming alongside of me or anything that anybody else might have to say. It's just what I understand all alone by myself. And then I might go and impose that on somebody, but I'll never come to relate to them. And I'll never take that book in, the other part of the book in there, and bring the guide into my life. We all need guides at times in our spiritual life. And we all have the capacity to take up the Scripture on our own, trusting the Spirit of God to uh, 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 rightly reveal His Word to us. But they're counterbalances. They both are true. And so there is that beauty there, and there is that balance. But we need at times a guide. And certainly the Ethiopian needed a guide here. So we don't want to practice solo scriptura. We need pastors and we need fellowship within the church. Both of those things are important as we think about the guide. But he needed this. He said, you know, I'm kind of blind here. I don't really know what's going on. In that sense, we would look back to Luke chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 39, and we'd say, well, then he's uh, being wise here because what are we going to do when we have a blind man leading a blind man? Well, they both fall in the pit. That's what Luke tells us. So here's appropriate time for that guide. I need some help here. I want to know what's going on. Well, coincidentally, wink, wink, he's reading out of Isaiah 53. So look there in verse 32. It says this is the passage that he was reading. Well, now he has Isaiah. That's what's often been referred to as the Old Testament gospel. And now he gets right to the heart of the gospel message 
in the Old Testament gospel. He's right there. Coincidence, of course. No. Divine preparation. God is initiating. And now He's bringing along His messenger to do that guiding work that is often necessary and good and beautiful within the body of Christ. Within evangelism and then within the body of Christ. A nice flow here. So here comes the guide. The man's open. He said, I want to know the truth. I don't understand what's going on here. Is the prophet here talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? What's going on here? And so Philip, Scripture tells us, there in verse 34, starts right there. And by the way, same is true for us. You take them to Scripture. Whatever context we find folks in in our evangelistic endeavors, whatever's going on in in their lives at that time, whatever they might want to talk to you about, be sensitive to it. Address it. But address it through Scripture. And then bring them to Scripture. And then when you get them in Scripture, bring them right to Jesus. So you follow the methodology here. It's the same for us. That's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he, did. he takes, he's in the Scripture, he meets him right where the man is in the Scripture. And then he brings him from that point, he brings him along to Christ. So he starts in Isaiah and then he points the man to Jesus. Just like Jesus did uh, uh, on the Emmaus Road with the two disciples, right? He just takes them right where they are, brings them to Scripture, and then follows them all the way along to himself in that, in that context. That's what we do. Start in Scripture, get them to Scripture. Now, in our culture, you know, it's, it's philosophy now within the church, right? Scripture's old hat. It's gone. It's, it's bad. You know, we need to push that aside. We need to address things philosophically. No, we don't. We need to bring people now more than ever to the Word of God. And then when we get them to the Word of God, we bring them through to Jesus. Every time, all the time, all day long. It never changes. That's the way we evangelize in every context, in every situation. And that's what we see here. We need to guide them rightly to the understanding of Scripture and we need to point, take them from Scripture right to Jesus. And so again, pastors, teachers are gifts to the church. They're needed within the church. They're good. Brothers and sisters, iron sharpening iron is good and fruitful. But what we cannot do is be just me all by myself and the Bible under the tree. Okay? So pastors, church fellowship, a need of working out Scripture together and praying and, and, and being fruitful and being humbled by the Word and, and working on it together in unison is good. Guides are good. Now, a couple things here before we move on from the explanation. Just by way of reminder. Okay? You're not always going to know what's next. All right? God's the initiator. Just treasure that. You're not always going to know what's next. Trust Him. Trust and obey. God knows best. And what's next may be unexpected, but here I can give you something that you can, that you can, you can bank on. It may be unexpected. It may, there may be some curveballs uh, from your perspective thrown to you in the Christian life. And they're coming to you from your God. But from your perspective, like, man, that was a curve. They may be unexpected, but they are filled with blessings, okay? Filled with blessings. You may not see it up front, but they are filled with blessings. God knows best. You're on a need-to-know basis. Just trust and obey. Trust and obey. Be ready to take them to Scripture and lead them all the way to Jesus. And if you ever, you know, just, just kind of like, man, what? Just look back on old Philip, right? Move from revival down to the middle of a desert road. Can't get more unpredictable than that. So, you know, take Solus and Philip. And then he leads this Gentile to Christ, fulfilling the prophecy in the fullest sense in chapter 1, verse 8. This is the ends of the earth. Now again, the ends of the earth is pictured here by this region where this man is from. That's why Luke took so much time to describe this guy to us. Major barriers. This guy is a Gentile. From their context, from their perspective, a Gentile from the very outer regions of the planet. I mean, from, from... First century Palestine, this guy's on the edge. It drops off from there. There is nothing else. Okay? That's the mindset. Now, this, Samaria was bad enough. This is, this, is, this is beyond Samaria. This is at the end. And he's a eunuch. You see what that's doing to the legalism? 
that was, that was piling up there in Jerusalem, this is just breaking all that down. So now the gospel goes to this guy. They couldn't find someone with any more barriers than this guy. And that's exactly where God takes His primary point man, lead evangelist into the Gentile world. Not sort of a little bit out of Samaria to the very end. Finds this guy out. Breaks them all down right there. All pushed away. So he leads in a very unpredictable way here, but he leads in a way that is beautiful and glorious. The same is true in your life. And the gospel has now extended to the Gentiles, now all the way to the ends of the earth, so to speak. Wow. Wouldn't they, that was a shake-up. That's going to be a shake-up in, in Jerusalem, is it not? I mean, they, even have to, they have to have a council to get this stuff figured out. I mean, God just, I mean, he's just running out front, man. But we need to trust and obey. Psalm 67, 7. Think about this eunuch here. God blessed us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. You're seeing that in this context. That's the blessing. Psalm 68, 3. Also, that's a fulfilled prophecy here in blessing. Psalm 68, 31. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out our hands to God. That's Him. That's Him. It's the old covenant <laughs> has so many barriers here, and they're just they're knocking, they're just rolling down like dominoes. The same thing in Deuteronomy twenty three one. That's the reference there for the eunuchs. Okay, if I, I didn't I didn't mention I didn't mention that reference, did I? There's your reference. Okay, so there's a barrier there, and that's pushed away. So the gospel moves all barriers. It just removes them all. It knocks them all out of the way. So no one's excluded. This guy was disfigured. This guy was disabled. That barrier is removed. This guy is a Gentile from the edge of the earth. Barrier removed. No ethnic or cultural favoritism. This guy is about as unpredictable as it gets from legalistic Judaism. And he gets him first out of the Gentile world. First Gentile. (laughs) The guy with all the warts. Goes and plucks him. What does that say to us? What does that say to us in our time? The gospel's for everybody, everybody. There's equal grace at the cross. There's equal unity in Christ. All division is eradicated at the cross. All this ethnic buildup, all this racial tension that is spewing over in the church. Now, it's normative out in a fallen world. Sad, heartbreaking, but normative. That shouldn't surprise you. What should shock you is that it freely flows into the church and we just sit back and say, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what we need to be doing. All that sinful garbage buries the beauty of the atonement of Christ. You know what? Our Sunday school lesson was marvelous. Thank you, brother. And poignant. But if you had to nutshell it, you know what it gets down to? Christ, hear me, Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient. To unite us. All believers everywhere are on equal footing. United in Christ. He is sufficient to overcome every barrier that's between us. Because He's overcome the grandest barrier that's between us and God. His holiness and our sinfulness has been eradicated at the cross of Christ. And that puts us on equal footing with every other believer of every ethnicity, every cultural climate, every uh, a nuance of society all over the planet. Equal. Sinners. Forgiven by the grace of our King Jesus Christ. No barriers. No going back and doing penance for one another. We're just coming together in glorious union and celebrating our Savior who's erased it all. One sinner loving another sinner in Christ. All the other garbage goes out the window. You get to see it right here. You were, you were not ready for God to kind of unite all those lessons this morning, were you? You're watching it. It happened, oh, over a millennium ago. Well, time is quickly escaping. I apologize. It's just so poignant. I don't know what to do with it myself. It's so poignant. We must have this, y'all. 
all divisions eradicated in the cross because Christ is enough. He's enough. He's enough to unify us. So, I don't know that it comes first. There's an order salutis. There's an order of salvation. And talk to your friends about that, okay? Talk amongst yourselves. I don't know what comes first in, some, in, in this context, in some regards. There's an order salutis, and, and we, we have good thoughts there. But know this. Early, early in the reality of salvation, there comes this unprejudiced love. Some of us might need to dust it off a little. But when you were saved and you got that and you knew that and space and time, with that comes this unprejudiced love. It's a fruit of the gospel. And that unprejudiced love is the only solution to our current context and the church today where this social justice and and racial attention and racial division is flooding over us with flowery biblical terminology and it's sinful and we must stand against it and love for one another and more importantly and love for Christ and His atonement over His bride. Well, what about the question? Let's get to the question here. I don't want it to be too anticlimactic, but it's, it's part of the text. So let's get to the question in verse 36, verses 36 through 38. Well, we see the explanation there. He gives them the gospel. But then the eunuch here has a question, and he comes back in verse 36. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look! Water, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, what, that, that, what tells us there is that apparently Philip had been talking to him about baptism. So it's okay, it's legal in the Christian world to talk about baptism while you're evangelizing. Who knew? So evangelism is, 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 can, can have the element of baptism just brought right in there if you want. Yeah. Which means baptism is pretty important. So he's addressing it. They've talked about it. The eunuch has some questions. Apparently they've been addressed, or addressed and, and so they're, they're moving and there's a little stream. They spot a stream out in the desert. Look, there's water. What would hinder me from being baptized? Okay, and that brings us to verse 37. And I, I really don't want to do this, but I'm bound to do it. It's part of my responsibility. That, that's bracketed probably in every one of your Bibles, right? Anybody have a Bible that's not bracketed there? That verse is bracketed, and it's bracketed for a reason, because it's nowhere to be found in any of the early manuscripts or in the majority text. I mean, it's just, you don't find it. However you come down on um, those issues, it's, it's not there. If you're, uh, whichever way you're, you're bud, you're, your bread's buttered on how you uh, look at textual criticism, it's not there, okay? Now, is that a problem? No. It's just we have, you know, thousands of manuscripts from the New Testament that have uh, coursed around all over the world for thousands of years. Or for a thousand years. Um, and they're all consistent. They all say the same thing. But they have scribal errors in them. We list them. We mark them down because... The text is divinely inspired and it is so consistent and so beautiful and has one straightforward message that comes clearly to us and that has been copied by fallible humans all over the planet, everywhere. And God has held it all together supernaturally and it has the same meaning everywhere that we find it. The text is not altered. Now there are... There are uh, Errors, most of it's misspelling or pronunciation, things like that. Things that fallen men would do. And a supernatural God would come over and superintend and bring it all about to His glory without any issues. That's what we're looking at here. So what you have here, most likely, is a very zealous uh, uh, later scribe who felt the need to kind of pin this in. Where Luke implies this, 
what he's saying here in verse 37 that yes, you need to believe from all your, with all your heart and then you may be baptized. Now, and by the way, that's true. And what we have here probably is a, a little um, catechism work, a part of a confession uh, in preparation for baptism that was carried out in the early church because you're looking here, this is many years later from the original text. And so this is probably a scribe. This is added in, and we've marked it off. I don't know exactly that that's the case. Most likely. This is an addition. You probably have a footnote somewhere, maybe, that they've, they've done that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, there's only 37. That's, that's bracketed, yes. So there's, this is only the, the only addition. And again, there's some technicalities, but, you know, this may come up. This may come up in your evangelism. So it's, we need to know this. And it's here. We've come to it in this text. We're working through this verse by verse, and so we're here. Um, that's why it's bracketed. It's not found. It's probably an addition. And that's why we've marked it off, and that's why ESV has is, is <laughs> eradicated it. That was easy. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it's still number 38. Yeah, they would not dishonor. I mean, that would be a little shady. So they would not dishonor the text that way, but that's what's happened. Um, there's nothing to hide. We have nothing to hide, okay? But when you come to that, that's what's going on here. Now, again, the beauty of it, this is still true. This is still true. What's being said here is true. It just wasn't, it's not Scripture. Okay? And we marked it off as such. Nothing to hide. Probably from an early catechism. And he's just used it here with every good intention. And it's found its way in. That happens when you have handwritten scribes working with lots of different manuscripts. We're fallible. But not to fear, God superintends all this and uh, His Word has purely preserved for us. We just have a lot of extra stuff. And we weed it out and we footnote it and we mark it off and it's clear. This is one of those cases. So that's what's happened. And that was, I knew that was going to be a tough hurdle there. Uh, I'm sorry I've rushed through it in this context. Maybe at another time we can talk about these things more fully. But we're 2.37 and there it is. Uh, not to worry and again, not Scripture, but nonetheless true, and it's marked off for you there to see nothing to hide. Now, um, he brings this up, though. He brings baptism up here. And it's important because the statement is true. And proper baptism does require believing from the heart. So what is baptism? We talked about that a little bit before. It's a picture. It's a picture of the covenant of the, of the Godhead between Father and Son, right? The covenant of grace. With whom, did Father, with whom did Father make the covenant of grace? With Christ's eternal Son. Now there's a covenant, as Danny said earlier, to save sinners by grace through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, as those who have been saved out, we picture that work, that marvelous work, we picture that in baptism. So we take on that covenant in pictorial form. We're buried with Him in Christ, raised up to walk with Him in newness of life because of the covenant of grace between Father and Son now applied upon us by His sovereign grace towards us in salvation. And we picture that. So baptism is very important. This is good and healthy and right. So He wants to be baptized. He says, yes, if you believe from your heart, you may. Now, Quickly, what I want you to see here, they were on a desert road, right? You think they had some water with them for the journey? This is hundreds and hundreds of miles. You think they had water? Maybe not only water, but probably water, right? Apparently, read with me here. Verse 38. And they ordered the chariot to stop, and they both, that being the eunuch and Philip, they both went down into the water. Philip as well as the eunuch, and he was baptized. And when they, they, that being Philip and the eunuch, they both came up out of the water, the Spirit snatched Philip away. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist here. I'm sure they had water. And if the proper mode of baptism from this Scripture would have been to sprinkle, they could have accomplished that. Yeah. Yeah. They found a stream that was divinely appointed to them by God who has initiated this whole thing and they both went down into the stream. 
And the eunuch was immersed in baptism because that is the proper mode because it pictures that covenant of grace that has now been applied to the eunuch who here believed. Get the beauty of this. Believed and said so. And a little phrase here that a zealous probably, a zealous scribe later had to emphasize which Luke just implies. And it's still not messed up. It's exactly true. And so they come out, and then the departure here. In verses 39 and 40, he snatched away. And by the way, I want you to see, teach baptism, okay? Teach it. It's commanded of us in the Great Commission. Obey the command to be baptized, and be baptized with the proper mode. Now there's a quick summary, and that's about all I can say there in terms of baptism. We're short of time. Quickly let me bring us to the departure. Verses 39 and 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. But he went away rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel. That's all the way up the coast there. He kept preaching the gospel in the cities until he came to Caesarea. And we know later in Acts we'll find out that he settled in Caesarea. He married a woman there, and he had four daughters. And they were all prophetesses, and we'll address that at some later date. But that's the departure. Now, Scripture is our final authority. That's what I want you to hold in this departure. Scripture is our final authority, and Jesus is the key to Scripture. All right? Now, he needed a guide, and Philip was provided as that guide. But now, right after he baptizes him, the Spirit snatches Philip away. And by snatch, I mean supernaturally, literally snatched, like a supernatural warp speed. He's gone. Completely out of there. Now, this is a baby Christian. And this was the guide sent to him on this desert road by God. Clearly he's seeing that. God, this is a divine appointment. You answered my prayer. I was reading and this man shows up out of nowhere, says that the Lord has led him to me, and then he reveals the truth. He takes me right from where I am and he points me to the Messiah. And I believe. So much so that I've taken on that covenant sign that you provided for us. A stream, not a canteen, a stream. I've been marked off. Now he's gone. And what's the eunuch left to do? Look with me. Rejoice. 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 He is not bound to the ministry of Philip. He is not bound to Philip as his, some kind of spiritual father. Although they're intimately tied, he's not bound to him. This guy, from our perspective, is like, he's left out in the cold. Where, where's the, 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 the New Testament? I mean, where's the, where's the new believer class? What's he going to do? Here's the other bookend. Here's the balance. The Spirit of God indwells him. He has the Scripture. Now, he may have gotten a good clue from Philip, and I hope he did. I don't want to insert things in Scripture here. But what we need to know is Jesus is the key to the Scripture. Now, we know he took him from where he was in Scripture, and he brought him to Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. That's what we need to hold on to. Scripture is our final authority, not one another, although we can work together and learn from one another, and we can be a reality of iron sharpening iron. But Scripture is our final authority. Now we work to find that rightly uh, 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 melded together beautifully in our lives in unity as brothers and sisters. But it's still our individual final authority, which rightly flows out into a corporate final authority, and it's sweet and beautiful. And there's room for, for growth and, and, and sharpening one another. But we're not one another's authority. Scripture is our final authority and Jesus is the key to Scripture. So when you find any passages of Scripture, what you do is you overlay that with the person and work of Christ and you read it rightly. That's what you do. And that's what the eunuch will do after Philip leaves him. And he's rejoicing in that fact. He's rejoicing. He'll no longer see him. But he's rejoicing. Scripture, balance here. We need pastors, we need fellowship, but Scripture is our final authority. The Scripture leads you, the Spirit of God will lead you according to Scripture, and the providence of God will lead you. Take them all 
and pursue him wisely. Remember that Jesus is the key to Scripture. How do we hold him as the key? We hold him as the suffering Savior. Now, when you overlay him on Scripture, you overlay him as the suffering Savior on Scripture. That's how we see him. That's the heart of the gospel message that he suffered on our behalf. That's what we understand. That through His suffering, forgiveness of sin has been offered to us. That's atonement. That's why all the barriers are broken down here. That's why we're looking at the eunuch saved. Brought in to the brotherhood. All the barriers are erased. Erased because there is a suffering Savior who suffered and through His suffering, forgiveness of sin has been granted to sinners like you and I and the eunuch from the ends of the earth. That makes us equal in Christ at the foot of the cross. He bore our sin debt in His body. And He imputed His righteousness to our account. That's what we hold. That's the picture. And there's the significance of the departure. We need one another, but we're not the final authority. It's Christ. Christ. Our, sin, our, 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 our suffering Savior overlaid in our authority, which is Scripture. Hold that. Remember the departure and hold that in the beauty of the fellowship of the church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for this time here. We thank You for this text. We thank You for all the beauty that You wrap up in this historical account of the early church and uh, the fullness of it. And we pray that You would sort it out for us. It is, it is uh, for feeble man is bulky but so glorious. And would you take your truth and would you minister to our hearts that we might know you more fully and worship you well. We ask this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.